You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, February 9th, 2011, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Happy birthday, Charles Darwin. Born this day, February 12th, 1809. So how old would he be right now if he were still alive? 202 years old. Yeah. Oh. He'd have some hip and joint problems. Just yesterday. But uh, he'd be be sharp as ever, eh? He'd have some incredibly short telomeres. (laughs) Bob. (laughs) Get into his personal life like that. Just saying. Good old Charlie Darwin. Chuck to his friends. So let's go on to some news items. The first news item is about processed food and IQ. This is you know, one of those stories that we get a tons of email on. It's been making uh, its way around the mainstream media, often reported as eating a healthful diet increases IQ, or the other way around, that processed foods reduces IQ. Can, what uh, is the exact definition of processed foods? Because I just got a food processor, and I love processing the ever-loving crap out of every food in my kitchen. Yeah, that's a that is a good question, and that is the, the at the heart of one of my uh, objections to the to this concept is the notion that pro, you know what is processed food and lumping it together uh, into one category like that doesn't necessarily make any sense. But generally speaking, the term is used to refer to food that is not like whole food that you cook yourself, but something that is sort of pre-mixed and cooked. It's like if you buy a TV dinner or you know, like a Hot Pocket right, would be <laughs> processed food. Right. So, so Rebecca, you have a food manipulator. <laughs> <laughs> that makes Steve. it sound dirty. I'm going to go manipulate me some hummus. <laughs> I would like extend that definition by saying that like bleached flour – or something that's had a lot of salt added to it, like anything that really isn't the way it was naturally. But yeah, but so the, this is partly the naturalistic fallacy that mm-hmm. you know, like as stuff comes out of the ground, it's, it's somehow better than if you manipulate it in some way. And it's also a false dichotomy because it's a continuum. You know, there's a continuum from eat, eating something literally unaltered, the way it, it is picked, you know, in nature, versus. What if? What about if you chop it up? What if you cook it a little bit? What if you mix it with something else? I mean, there's all different degrees of altering, of cooking, of processing food. So it's more. It is more of a continuum. But at the processed end of the spectrum, where you're buying food that's been significantly altered to the point where you know the the contents have been specifically manipulated, you know, in order to create a product that is. Uh, that it, that is marketable, for example. So, like, if you, if if you're manipulating the amount of fat and sugar and salt that's in the end product, that's based that's processed food, basically. Can we all agree that a Twinkie is probably the most processed a food can get? So, definitely, yeah. Twinkie is processed food. There, Actually, yeah. you know, Twinkie gets a bad rap. A lot of people think that Twinkies will last beyond the apocalypse, uh-huh. but in fact, Twinkies have an expiration date that is normally. Just a month or so after being baked. Well, I guess for human consumption, zombies will eat anything. 
<laughs> well, aren't there Twinkie trees? Don't they get it from trees? Oh, oh man, they, that stinks. Oh wow, it's really? true. They do. They are harvested. Bob, you, so you want to want to get to this actual study? <laughs> so what, this is an epidemiological study <laughs> really. where they basically looked at three to eight year olds and they uh, you know queried them as to their diet and put, and sorted them into three categories: high in processed food, high in traditional food like meat and potatoes, and then. A healthy, conscious uh, diet like salads and fish. And then they found that there was a slight decrease in IQ at at, at age eight in the group that ate a lot of processed food compared to the other two. Slight being a few IQ points. Was this controlled for income? Yeah, so it was controlled for the basic stuff. It was controlled for uh, socioeconomic status, level of education of the parents, and breastfeeding because breastfeeding also can you know can affect nutrition mm-hmm. but here's the thing so while they controlled for the obvious things like that this is an observational study it's an epidemiological study it's not experimental so there's a, a thousand things that they didn't control for so for example it's you know easy to speculate about confounding factors here like well maybe parents who feed their kids lots of processed food don't have time to spend with them, to spend quality time with them. That's why they're allowing them to eat processed food rather than cooking or whatever. Or maybe parents who allow their kids to eat a lot of processed food are more permissive. Than maybe they just parents. hate their kids. <laughs> whatever. I mean, it's it, it, it could just be a marker for other behavior, and it's really the other behavior which is having the influence on IQ. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, right? So you just can't draw any conclusions from a single observational study like this. But also, it's a tiny effect, you know, just a few points. So it could also just be random noise. noise. Just yeah, noise. it could just be noise. But have there been studies that show that um, better nutrition as a child can improve IQ later in life? And yeah, so, so that's absolutely true. So the, the, the plausibility here is that Good nutrition, especially when you're young and developing, definitely has an impact on you know, pretty much anything you care to measure later on, intelligence, size. Then uh, the, the sub- subsequent question is, is, are, is a, a, f- a diet high in processed food lack, lack nutrition compared to right. these other diets? And that's where I think you know, things get a little iffy. The problem with processed salt. food, generally speaking, yeah, is that it contains too much of stuff. Either it's too much fat or too much salt, and not that it's – it will cause malnutrition. Uh, and also, you know, in a, in a Western industrialized nation, uh, malnutrition is generally not a problem. So they didn't demonstrate that kids who were eating a highly processed diet were malnourished. So that, that would certainly be, you know, be more information that would be helpful in trying to assess what the study is actually saying. Is it really causative is, or is it just a marker for something else that has nothing to do with nutrition? So the correct thing to do from here is to come up with better studies, more concrete studies? Yeah, I think that you, know, be, you would like to verify the results of this study, first of all, because it's a small effect. And again, it could just be noise. And if it holds up, you want to look at it from multiple different angles um, you know, to test the various hypotheses, try to control for more variables. Uh, like parental time, for example, or whatever. Just anything you could think of that would be another another factor. And then also see if there are other markers to see if nutrition is causative or there are other markers that go along with that. So, But even yeah, still, is, Steve, we're talking about a few points here. It's not significant at all. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a small effect. It's a very small effect. So, but you know, it's, but it's easy to give processed food a bad rap, you know, and a lot of the media just went for that, the quickie processed food and lower IQ, you know, but... 
Uh, and I'm not defending again like the food industry or processed foods per se. I think that that the industry generally does, you know, use uh, inexpensive ingredients when they can get away with it, and they will, you know, you put lots of fat and calories in there or, or carbs, whatever, whatever it takes to make it tasty and uh, and not necessarily healthful. Um, and it's only going to get better if. You know, there's a lot of consumer demand for more, for more healthy products, but I don't think there's anything inherently unhealthy about the act of processing food. I just think it's what the industry chooses to put in there, and probably from what I've been reading, the biggest problem is just the high is two things. I would say one is the high salt content. People Bad. are getting much more salt than they need, and the other one is the stealth calories. Mm-hmm. The fact that people get many more calories than they realize uh, in a lot of processed food. I don't think that poor nutrition is necessarily a consequence of eating processed food. Now, you know, quote unquote, junk food is different. Like if you're living on Twinkies, that's not a good idea. Agreed. Yep. Let's go on. We have another IQ story, actually. Bob, you can tell us about bacterial IQ. Yeah, this was uh, was pretty cool. And uh, I learned a lot um, in the course of researching this. Scientists have developed an IQ test for bacteria and have discovered a, a couple of species of bacteria that are geniuses are not compared to us, well, most of us, but compared to their other single-cell brethren. They, these guys are definitely way off the scale. Now, Professor Eshel Ben-Jacob of Tel Aviv University's Department of Physics and Astronomy and his research student have led uh, an international team of scientists in their research of probably my new favorite bacteria, Penibacillus vortex, or P. vortex for short. Um, Professor Ben-Jacob, yo, what was your old favorite bacteria? <laughs> Radio Durans, but this one I think uh, might okay. take the cake. Um, okay, you, just checking. You didn't think he was going to have an answer for that, did you? I just just tra- just checking, just checking. That's all. <laughs> Bob, to clarify right up front, we're talking about the collective intelligence of colonies of bacteria, right? Not individual bacteria. Yes, right. Okay. right, right. So a quote from this guy, Ben Jacobs said. Uh, bacteria are our worst enemies, but they can also be our best friends. I agree with that. Actually, can I just interject? Yeah. Most bacteria <laughs> are neither. They're quite neutral to humanity. They are neither our friends nor our enemies. A small percentage are pathological, and a small percentage are beneficial. Now throw this study out. Give, and the rest don't give a crap about <laughs> us. Just to, just, right. to throw, just to throw it out there. True, but they're not only just beneficial. I, mean, I don't think that's a strong enough word. They are critical to uh, mm-hmm. pretty much life as we know it. So, yeah, they are key, key. Um, But uh, to finish his quote, he said that to better exploit their capabilities and to outsmart pathogenic bacteria, we must realize their social intelligence. Now, by social intelligence, they're talking about um, essentially their interactions with the environment and each other. So that's kind of exactly what they mean when they say social intelligence. Now, this guy, uh, Ben Jacob, discovered this – discovered P. Vortex 20 years ago, but now that he's got the, the new genetic tools at his command that we have today, he and his team were the first to sequence P. Vortex. And during this study, while they were sequencing this guy uh, or these guys, uh, they were they they devised they, they developed their first ever bacteria social IQ score. They derived the score from basically an assessment of the genes in the bacteria arsenal, and th- that allow them to communicate and process information about their surrounding environment, and uh, and doing the things that they do to make their little bacterial decisions. Now, the IQ is also based on the chemicals that the bacteria can synthesize for offense and defense. Most bacteria, especially and luckily our everyday pathogenic bacteria, are pretty stupid. Um, well, maybe they're not stupid, but they're only average, like the ones we've all heard, Streptococcus, Staphylococcus. Um, e. coli. Uh, that, that joke is too easy. Uh, e. coli, Salmonella, P. Vortex, on the other hand, 
they are apparently very good at taking tests. If you compare them to all, to all the 500 of the different bacteria that, that's been sequenced, these guys are just crazy smart. They, they, you know, they, they, the scientists try to compare them to human IQs, um, which I think is, you know, is risky and problematic. problematic yeah. If the average species of bacteria has a social IQ of, say, 100, then the P. vortex is 160, um, which, or three standard deviations above normal, putting them in the relative range of, you know, an Albert Einstein, Stephen Hawking, um, Richard Dawkins. They, they react and, and work in their environment more efficiently or faster or better than other bacteria, right? Right. They, yeah, just the way they, they interact and assess the environment around them is just astounding. But is this the, but the quantity, the way they quantify, is it basically the number of different behaviors that the bacteria can engage in? No, no, I, w- I wouldn't say the I wouldn't say the number, uh, but just the complexity and sophistication of of what they can do. For example, in a lot of ways, they actually a colony can act like a multicellular organism because they'll have different differentiated cells, and they they have tasks that are distribu- uh, distributed between Sounds them. Sounds like the Borg. Oh man, in, in a lot of yeah, they're I can, the I Borg can of see that. Yeah, I mean, they actually they send out swarms of bacteria to seek out food and bring it back to the wait. To, isn't to the there already colony. a Borg of bacteria? in Voyager. Come on, nerds. Come on. Species 8675309 or something. I never watched... Yeah, I I remember them. I I loved watching them kick the Borg's ass. That was great. See? (laughs) Did I just out-dork you guys? Yep. What the hell? It's an anomaly, but yeah, it happens. <laughs> also, these guys are just so awesome. The way even they communicate is amazing. The, the chemical communi- communication that they engage in is so sophisticated. Scientists compare it to human linguistics in terms of semantics and, and other aspects of language. They could actually communicate to each other things like population size, environmental measurements at different locations. And the bottom line, though, just for this whole social IQ thing is that, I mean, there, it's not just, oh, wow, look at this cool bac- species of bacteria. But I mean, we could we could learn a lot from them in terms of we can learn about new antibiotics. We can create these new powerful bacteria-based green pesticides for the agricultural industry. So a lot of benefits from this. Sounds like you're saying they have a social network of uh, of certain kinds. I wonder if they have <laughs> yeah, some, right? something like Facebook, you know, bac- yeah. bacteria book, pseudopod. Yeah, but they all under relationship. It's all just asexual. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the relationship status <laughs> still who asexual. Cares? It's complicated, but it's, it's complicated. Still asexual. <laughs> They all have the same Facebook picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what? That's bigoted, Jay. They don't all look alike. <laughs> they they can tell each other apart. Exactly. Tagged you on this slide. <laughs> <laughs> How do you unfriend the, these guys? Yeah. <laughs> Instead of groups, it's just Petri dishes. <laughs> That's all I got. I'm out. I'm done. It, uh, their their Twitter must be boring as hell. Um, <laughs> Don't poke me too hard, you break my membrane. Jay, you're going to tell us about a skin cell spray gun. Well, other doctors have developed spray-on skin devices like Dr. Fiona Wood of the West Australia Burns Unit, and she did successfully treat a lot of people. Um, one of the flaws of their original design, which I think they did this around 2000, was that it damaged some of the skin cells when they apply them because of the way that they, they spray them on. But this recent uh, development uh, ha- has greatly increased 
the success rate of these of these treatments. So let me give you some background. Just we'll talk about burns real quick. So burns are usually treated with skin grafts. And this is where they take healthy skin and then they graft it to the injured part of the body. And burns are also treated the same way with skin that's grown artificially. And that's really cool. We've actually figured out a way to grow sheets of skin in the lab. And then what they would do is they would take that that artificial skin. It's actually real skin, uh, but it just wasn't grown on a human body. And then they would use that the same way that they would use a skin graft and uh, arguably not as effectively just because of how fragile they are. And also people that that uh, get real skin grafts or, or grown uh, skin grafts, uh, those types of um, treatments are actually prone to infection because yeah, your, your skin is your body's first line of, of defense against infection. So if you have a significant wound or you've burned your, yourself significantly, then your body can't fend off a bacteria or virus in the same way. So that's, unfortunately, people that uh, get burned also have to deal with massive infections. Another problem with growing skin in a lab is that it takes weeks to grow. And like I said, this skin is very fragile. So they would take a sample of somebody's skin. They would use that to grow skin. And then, you know, that patient has to wait weeks before they could do anything for him. And then when they apply these grafts, sometimes fluid uh, from the skin can build up under them. And this could this could damage the skin graft. Just lots of different problems with this process. Professor Gerlach and his team at the Department of Surgery at the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, De- McGowan, developed the treatment in 2008, and his new system uses a method that is electronic- an electronically controlled pneumatic device that, unlike previous systems, doesn't damage the skin cells that they, they literally shoot onto the patient. So a biopsy is taken from the patient's undamaged skin. What they do is there are healthy stem cells in this skin. Those are isolated, they're dissolved in water, and then they spray it on the on the burn. And it sprays it on, of course, you know, they do it as evenly as they can. And the wounded skin is then covered with a dressing that has two sets of tubes embedded in it. And this is the technology that really uh, makes this process work very well. The two sets of tubes that are embedded in the dressing... One of them acts as an artery and the other acts as a vein. And what this system does is it provides electrolytes, antibiotics, amino acids, and glucose to the wound. So it does two things. It keeps the wound sterile and provides the skin with the nutrition it needs to grow. So it's basically, you know, taking this new skin that they've moved from the, the another part of the body. They've evenly distributed these, these stem cells over the burned area. Then they're protecting it in a way that skin grafts can't can't function and it's feeding the skin so the skin grows very rapidly and guess how many days it takes for this treatment to uh to you know i wouldn't like say cure someone of the wound but basically get them to a a very healthy state where they're not prone to infection anymore a number it's like basically three days from what though from a second degree third degree only second degree degree they can't do third degree burns yet they're they're working on that you know a second the difference between a second degree and a third degree burn is is pretty significant but this works on second degree burns the idea here is though guys that we're, we're talking about treating people in days instead of weeks and i'm sure steve knows this but burn victims are in enormous pain and the recovery is long and long after they get out of the hospital, they could be debilitated. And what do you think hurts more, second-degree or third-degree burns? Second Probably second-degree. Third-degree second. uh, third actually burns the nerves so you don't feel it anymore, right? 
That's right. Yeah, kills all the nerves. I've had so, second degree burns. They are nasty. I saw a video. That really stings. I saw a video of a guy that got treated with this process. They've treated dozens of people successfully so far, and I'm telling you, the guy had the pictures of his hand. What the second degree burns of of what he had sustained from a there was he was standing near a fire at a party and someone threw a cup of gasoline and of course you know things went wrong and he That's got severely burned but they party. showed his skin three days after treatment and guys it looked almost normal like you really have to look closely to say oh maybe that's not really that normal I mean it's phenomenal how well this process works yeah it seems like a really good approach you know basically evenly spreading stem cells and letting them reproduce you know where they're going to ultimately be rather than trying to lay a delicate sheet of skin cells onto onto the burned skin uh, the burn tissue and have you know then you have all those problems that are that are inherent to that so this seems like a superior approach and it's good that they you know got over those technical hurdles and and made it work it's great and there, one more quick interesting fact that that in 2008 this research was funded by the US Department of Defense under the Armed Forces Institute of Regenerative Medicine and it, this was created specifically to research better ways to treat wounded service personnel War is generally very good for emergency and trauma medicine. Testing things out, yeah. Think about how much you know trauma you deal with in a war in a war situation, you know. And also, how much money mil- the military has to spend on endeavors like this. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Most, maybe not most, but a ton of our current present day technology that we use in our everyday lives is only possible because of military That's applications. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, ideally, of course, we'd love to say, hey, let's not spend any money on war and spend all of our money on technology, and we'd have a lot more stuff. But, you know, at the very least, the military does spend money in ways that that people do eventually benefit from in regards to health and, and, you know, things like this. When I read this article, and I, I always love things like this because you could just really see technology coming alive and helping people. And this is where Carl Sagan said science delivers the goods. And, and this is something, no matter how hard homeopaths or chiropractors would dare try to uh, say that anything that they do can achieve great ends, this is something that's phenomenal. This is a true... Now, hold on, Jay. You're telling me that you know that a, that a pseudoscientist like a homeopath wouldn't claim to treat something as obviously traumatic as a burn? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> No, but if you have a headache or depression, Steve, they're on it. I, well, hang on. I have something to say about that, actually. Yeah, Rebecca might, <laughs> might have something to add to that. What do you think about, Rebecca? Well, it's funny we should be talking about uh, quacks trying to treat emergency trauma. This is a really depressing story, so I hope everyone enjoyed the awesome story of the skin gun um, because things are about to get really sad. A 16-year-old boy uh, near Philadelphia was injured while wrestling in a wrestling practice. He butted heads with another student, and he was left with some severe spinal damage. He went to the hospital, to Jefferson Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, where doctors um, attempted to immobilize him and prepare him for surgery in order to hopefully save him from the possibility of being a quadriplegic for the rest of his life. His mother, unfortunately, is a naturopath. We we talk a lot about um, 
people using quack medicine, alternative medicine to treat serious diseases. But as mentioned, it rarely is it quite so absurd as in this case, because the doctors attempted to explain to the mother and the son that were he to move around, he could risk severely damaging his spine again and make the problem much worse. However, the mother began fighting for the right to take her son home so that he could be treated with herbs, herbs and spices. Herbs are going to cure him? Yes. According to this woman, um, Vermel Mitchell, she has a degree in naturopathy um, from Trinity School of Natural Healing, and ORAC wrote a complete takedown of this case on um, respectful insolence. He describes how she, um, how, how her school offers courses uh, such as a master of iridology, which is the the crazy thing that you you know you can diagnose illness based on just the eyes, things like that. So, and, oh, and also a, an associate degree in Bible studies, a certified health specialist. They teach homeopathy, basically the full range of of quackery is taught at the yeah. school. And she buys into it all. And apparently she's raised her son to buy into it all as well because he supported her decision to take him home, uh, despite being told that it could possibly leave him paralyzed. Luckily, I suppose, um, the courts intervened and uh, Delaware County attempted to um, gain temporary custody of the teenager. They just uh, the other day, I believe, they were granted temporary custody. And so the boy, whose name is Maserati, by the way, um, I'm just going to set that down and walk away because this is a very tragic thing and I don't want to joke about it. Um, but that's his name. So Maserati is now uh, still in the hospital awaiting treatment. And the mother is uh, trying to get a lawyer to appeal, I believe. So it, it's a really tricky case because the kid is 16, um, which means he's right on the cusp of being able to decide these things for himself. Um, he's right on the cusp of adulthood. Yeah. And, you know, we grant a lot of uh, powers to 16-year-olds and, you know, a 16-year-old can really decide for himself what what's going to happen to him. So this isn't just a case of, you know, a very young child whose opinions on his own medical treatment don't matter. Um, so on the one hand, you do, I, I, I think there is a natural desire to want this near adult to make decisions for himself. But on the other hand, this is so incredibly insane and damaging um, that it's, you know, you can, you can really see the the purpose I think of of wanting to intervene, and even if he was a full grown adult over the age of eighteen, I I think that it would be I don't know I I can kind of see the the benefit of intervening because he obviously you doesn't really can't, understand. I mean, once you're once you're a legal adult, you have the right, right to refuse even common sense life saving medical care. It's just, that's Unless just the way it is. Unless, Unless you're you determined them insane. to be right. insane, right? And 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 that's what I'm saying about this is that it, it, this to me 
Um, and I, I suppose on a basic level, it's just the same as someone thinking that homeopathy can cure their cancer. It's yeah. you know just as effective, I suppose. But on another level, it is to me really just incredibly insane to believe that herbs can somehow fix you when you're just by moving, you are risking paralyzing yourself. I mean, they're not they're not campaigning against some sort of Western drug in this case. It's although I should note and Orac notes that she's also resisting the use of steroids on yeah. the boy and Orac points out that that could be a good move because the use of steroids in cases like this hasn't been proven to have much of an effect. Um, but in the case of resisting just keeping the kid locked down so that he doesn't re-injure himself, that to me passes some sort of line in the sand. That to me crosses over into pure insanity. But unfortunately, the, the definition of uh, of being impaired d- does not include making a horrifically bad decision. You, know, you have to actually like not understand the consequences of your decisions. I mean, the, the, the criteria are pretty extreme. But doesn't that? I mean, doesn't isn't that the definition of not understanding the consequences? I mean, you know, clearly there's no way that either of them can understand the consequences if they're ready to move uh, someone with a severe spinal injury. Yeah, but believing, believing in magic, unfortunately, is not enough. So like, if you're yeah. an adult and you say, I'm going to pray and that's going to magically make me better, that you know, to, to a rational person that may seem crazy, but that doesn't buy you the legal definition of of impaired or incompetent. Yeah. Um, and and even I you know I should mention that I get the you know the desire to also fight for an individual's freedom of choice. Um so to me it's just a really sticky, ugly, depressing case. But what can be done guys, you know, it's one thing to to respect people's freedom to make these types of choices and you know of course we're all having that dilemma where we're saying but it's in the 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 16-year-old's best interest, but it's, you know, the, but the, we can't take their rights away, you know, even if it's in their best interest, which is, that's something else that needs to be discussed, because we do have seatbelt laws and speed limit laws and all sorts of stuff like that, but what they could do is make it, um, make it required for them to, like, witness study results and video and, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, give them a, an education on, what they're about to be doing, you know. What, 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 you what, can offer that to them, but you can't force it on them. I mean, it's well, why? Why? You know, yeah, why? You can't, you can't ship them off to a re-education center. No, yeah. why? You know, why can't we be prepared for circumstances like this? It's not like you know the, the I, you know what? But it's what not are a re-education options? center? It's a critical thinking center. Yeah, I'm just, I use that term deliberately. I mean, the yeah. point is, you cross over a certain fuzzy line where you start to have, you know, a 1984 kind of fascist state, and we just decide that, you know, despite the fact that that you know it it, it means people are going to make horrific decisions for themselves, we err on the side of, of personal freedom, and that that's the decision we've made as a culture, as a, as a society. I think it's reasonable. I think it's reasonable to have the you know the exception for kids. I think if you're underage. You know, then, then no, you can't make horrific decisions for yourself, and your parents can't abuse you by making horrific decisions for you either. And I think that's that's all a reasonable compromise. I understand. It's believe me, it's tremendously frustrating 
when somebody is making these kind of decisions. The real culprit here is the the fact that we allow this system of completely nonsensical and unscientific medicine to exist in our society. That's I agree really, with that, of mm-hmm. course. But there there isn't a, there isn't a way to completely solve that issue, especially quickly enough, Steve. And, and there, there isn't, and certainly there's no quick fix, but this, this is just one example of why it, it does matter. When people say, what's the harm if people want to believe in this frou-frou stuff like homeopathy or herbal medicine or whatever? Well, this is the harm. This is it. It teaches people to believe in nonsense, and that's very, very dangerous. All right, well, let's move on. Uh, let's do a quick one, uh, Evan. You're going to tell us about the Jew-FO. <laughs> Oh, racist. Holy crap. Who knew? (laughs) That was good. This is the Jerusalem UFO, Steve, as you so so humorously pointed out. Succinct. I was very (laughs) succinctly. Mm -hmm. It was the uh, late evening, uh, early morning of um, January 29th, in which the supposed Jerusalem UFO footage. Uh, occurred. So you have a wide shot at night of the um, Rock Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, hovering over the dome of the Rock Temple Mount is a light. A light, which would, you know, I guess by comparison to the other things in the video, maybe, I don't know, be about maybe 10 feet long or so, a pretty small yet pretty bright light. It's hovering there over the rock, um, over the dome of the of the Rock Temple Mount, Hangs there in the air for a while, and then all of a sudden, flash, zooms up into the air. The camera follows it up, and it apparently disappears out of sight. And uh, you can see some blinking red lights, as if there is a mothership or something equivalent uh, hovering up just beyond the cloud line or something. Essentially to that effect. You can take a look online and, and see the Jerusalem UFO videos. There were two that were initially released. And then a few days later, a third came out. And then just recently, a day or two ago, a fourth video of this UFO sighting came out. So what's, so what's going on here? What is all this? Aliens? <laughs> probably, probably aliens. Could be aliens. Most of the panel guesses aliens. What is most likely going on here is a hoax. Or, or, or a series of hoaxes. Come on. I know. Evan, it's not at all. I'm sure this odds. was it. And a hoax. I was sure this was the time when a giant, brightly lit UFO flew over a major city and nobody reported it. Right. Until mm-hmm. days later when somebody put an anonymous video up on YouTube. Because when we do encounter aliens, that's what it's going to be like. An anonymous video on YouTube with no other witnesses or information. Yeah, I know, right? You know, thousands of people would have reported yeah. something like that. That's right. This is not some remote area of Israel or something in the in the desert. This is this is Jerusalem. I mean, this is the this is the hub of activity in which there are thousands of people around every night. Nobody else saw this. Got video foot got footage of it of any kind. Very suspicious. Um, also, nobody knows who exactly uh, took the videos that uh, went up onto YouTube. And uh, there's a lot of problems with the actual video itself. Uh, the relatively small size of the alien. Uh, in three of the four videos, the lights all seem stationary except for the UFO light. There's unnatural acceleration of this object. Uh, there's no external noises that the object is, is making. It's certainly, you know, defying every law of, of uh, right. But, but even if you write, 
even if you write all of that off of that's just how the UFOs behave, right? They're silent. They defy physics. That's how we know they're alien technology, right? That's what a proponent would say. But if you look at these videos, again, we'll have the links, of course, on the notes page, that uh, they, they, it looks fake, right? It looks like a like CG, and you know how that's, it, how that's how aliens look. Alien yeah, ships. yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's alien ships. I, yeah, remember like when Bill, I, when I wrote about this, I was like, yeah, they just happen to look like whatever way you can fake them. So like Billy Meyer had that video of this of the flying saucer, which was literally dangling pendulum like from a from a string, <laughs> like Ed Wood Ed, did in his yeah, movies back in yeah. the forties. And, and the proponent said, well, that's just how they move. Yeah, it's like yeah, they use a <laughs> pendulum drive. Imagine, imagine these aliens come out of the spaceship and they're an eight bit. Yeah, they're an eight <laughs> So now they apparently they use CG drive or something. They move like they move just like they would. Because you've seen enough CG now. You know how like unnaturally uniform uh, something that's moving on a, like with computer graphics looks. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. There's something unnatural about it. It's unnaturally straight and uniform and everything. Well, that's exactly what this looks like. It looks like something that was programmed on a computer. And again, it's a blob of light. It's not like a you can see any kind of detail. But in one of the pictures, Evan, there's one um, where it's like a fairly close-up picture of the temple. And uh, what this, what I thought was interesting about this, I don't, I don't remember ever seeing this before. It was a, a video that was, uh, that was created using a still photograph as the background, right? And sort of mm-hmm. zooming in on the photo as if you were zooming in on the scene. But of course, that creates anomalies. For example, all of the lights in in the in the photo are stationary. That's right. All, you know, because no you have the um, yeah the flares. You know, like the the little star effect on all the lights. And if you were actually moving a camera around and zooming in and out, they would sparkle and rotate and yeah, come they, in and out. Fly. Yeah. Instead, they, they're perfectly static. Well, let's move on to who's that noisy. I'm going to play for you last week's Noisy, and we'll see if you all remember this one. First Hawk, ergo Proctor Hawk. Yeah, right. not much to go on there. Nope, not much to go on. So, you think anyone got that right? Oh, my <laughs> God. I saw <laughs> the emails. Have we had as many emails as we did? I don't know that we've had as many emails about any one thing that, <laughs> than we did on this Noisy. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was trying to figure that. Why did so many people respond to this one? I think because a lot of people knew it and thought that other people wouldn't know it because yeah. it was tricky. Uh-huh. So they thought, "Oh, I'm going to get this one right," but but a ton of people knew this. So that was the quote by um, that was quoted by actor Martin Sheen playing President Bartlett from The West Wing in season one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've never even watched West Wing to tell you the truth. Really? Yeah, I I randomly happened across. That segment on YouTube, and it was actually quite random. <laughs> I said that would be perfect. But a lot of our listeners apparently are very big West Wing listeners, or watchers, and fans of the show. But none were faster than listener Patrick McComb, who emailed in first the correct answer. So congratulations, Patrick. All right. Thanks, Evan. What do you got for this week? All right. For this week? Okay. Try to identify this noisy. Sounds like Jay. <laughs> it does sound a little like Jay. <laughs> no, it doesn't. 
Do you guys have any idea what that might so be? So are you saying that was not a human being shouting in the background there? <laughs> yeah, so that would be the hint for this week. That is not a human being. Yeah, it's something else. That is right? something else. Okay. All right. Interesting. So All right, Evan. That's this week's Who's That Noisy. Please post your messages on our forum or send us an email at info at theskepticsguide.org. Good luck, everyone. Thanks, Evan. Well, let's go on with our interview. We are joined now by Jeff Ainsley. Jeff, Jeff, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, Jeff is one of the hosts of Fat to Fit Radio, a weight loss and fitness podcast. Uh, how long have you been doing that? Uh, we've been doing the show about three and a half years. When we started the show, my co-host was about 100 pounds overweight, and after three and a half years, he's finally lost his 100 pounds. So it's been a so it's been a process of following him as he loses the weight, and now we're finally getting there, and now it's maintenance and just living this healthy lifestyle. That's a good idea. We, we should have done that four or five years ago, Steve. One of us should have been like a true believer, and we just should have like slowly converted one of us <laughs> into a skeptic. <laughs> Jeff, are you the reason why your co-host had such a uh, success? Well, I think it's partially. I found out about him because he had another podcast earlier about weight loss, and he lost, I think it was 60 pounds really quick. And I was listening to this because I had gained some weight and I was looking for inspiration. And he stopped telling people how much weight he had lost week after week. And I knew it was happening. So I basically sent him an email and said, hey, I can help you out. He said, hey, do you want to start a new podcast? And that was the start of Fat to Fit Radio. And he finally lost all the weight slowly and hopefully he's going to keep it off. That's funny you say that because you know I have so many friends who have gone through that too, where as they're losing weight, they're advertising the success of their weight loss, and then you just stop hearing about it after a while. You know, they, they just stop t- telling everybody about their weight, and then when you see them, you know, they've, they've gained it back or more. So unfortunately, that, that's a common pattern with weight loss, right? It's very, most people who lose weight on a, on a quote-unquote diet are destined to gain it back, right? And really, the statistics are in the high 90% people who gain back all of their weight, plus a little more within two years. Some of the best statistics out there are from Weight Watchers. And I found some internal uh, studies that they did in Weight Watchers. And of the people who are their lifetime members and who've managed to keep off their weight for five years, it's only about 35%. And these are the people that are still involved and going to all of the regular meetings. That's not a huge success rate. Oh, wow. And it's a pretty big commitment, too. I mean, these are the people who are committed or are going to meetings and it's part of their life. That's right. So they're not including all the people who try it for a year or two and give up and gain their weight back. They're not even counting those people in those stats. And Jeff, Jeff, listening to some of your, your shows, um, actually, uh, Weight Watchers, isn't, aren't they like the probably best diet centers that are out there? Are the other, and all the other ones even are just far, far worse in terms of, in terms of actually the plan that they, they make, they make you use to, to lose the weight and, uh, well, it depends what you consider to be the best. They're definitely the biggest out there, and they're a major conglomerate. But when you look at different countries, we get emails from Australia and, and UK, and they have totally different centers that seem to be popular there. But the industry as a whole is just worth billions and billions of dollars. And it's really the only industry that gets bigger and bigger and never succeeds at what they're trying to sell. Mm-hmm. If you think about, um, look at people learning how to read, for example, if the literacy rates were only 66% and going lower and lower year after year and people are investing more money, you'd have to think there's something wrong with all of these diet centers. 
Yeah, and it's not just the diet centers. I think it's also the self-help industry for weight loss. And it's which I also find ironic that every type of fad diet makes the argument, well, these other diets don't work because they've been around for years and Americans are still getting fatter. Meanwhile, of course, their diet's been around for years also. I think the entire weight loss industry is, you know, gets gets a chalked up as a failure, don't you think? Oh, I totally agree with you. And if you look at the current diet books right now, they're going into a trend where they are trying to look for scientific evidence. They're all going to point out things like, oh, it's your your blood type that's important, or it's leptin or ghrelin. It's those types of hormones that are causing you to be fat. And they all have really convincing studies. But if you look at these books side by side, one of them has to be totally wrong, or they're both wrong. You know, one, one observation I made, guys, is that the fact is, Lots of people are having a tremendous amount of success by dieting, by, by doing some type of calorie-restrictive diet. The fact is, the real problem is, is that they can't maintain right. it. So, so I, I put it to you guys, and, and Jeff, I'm sure that you, you have come to some type of conclusion like this already, that dieting does work and exercise does work. It's being able to incorporate that into your lifestyle and having some type of sustainability that's the real issue here. Well, you're right in that exercise and reducing calories does help you lose weight, but you also have the word lifestyle, and the problem is people can't put it together. The problem with a diet is people go on as a temporary thing, and then they go off the diet. Our whole concept of our show is that you look at your goal weight, and you look at that person, you figure out how much that person eats and exercises, and then you start eating that right now, and then eventually you become that person, so you never go off the diet. So I guess to say it simply, you start to live the lifestyle of that thinner person and you will become that person. So let's get to some of the most common weight loss myths. Uh, obviously, there's, you know, there's a huge industry uh, of uh, weight loss, either self-help or products. They have to sell something to people. You can't just keep telling people the same few basic truths over and over again so that everyone has to have their gimmick. And uh, let's start with what I consider to be the most common one, and that is that the macronutrient ratios are the secret to losing weight. What do you think about those claims? Well, it's definitely true that they went through phases of this. They had the high-carbohydrate diets with all vegetables, etc., and the low-carb diets that started with the Atkins diet and everything in between. And really, that is the difference between the programs when you look at it. There's really not much else between these programs. It's all macronutrients and how much you eat of each one and how often, etc. Do you think there's anything to the, the low-carb diets or, or any of those diets based upon macronutrients? Well, there was a study that just came out this year that was talking about the low-carbohydrate diets, and it was a long-term study. I don't have the reference right in front of me, but it was about a 20-year study, and it showed that the mortality rates from all causes was a lot higher for people who are on these low-carb diets. You know, I've read the Dr. Atkins book, you know, the Atkins diet at the start from 1972, I think, and I was totally convinced that this was the way to live, but it takes 30 years of study and seeing what happens to people in the long term to see that it's what people thought it is it's just not as healthy as what he was claiming back in the 1970s the the truth is finally coming out so yeah i i agree with you i think that uh, the if you look at the the basic science research there's lots of interesting things going on in terms of the effects of carbohydrates and glycemic index and fat etc but if you look at the clinical data just looking at what people are doing there doesn't seem to be any benefit to adjusting your macronutrients right it's just it comes down to how much are you exercising and how much are you eating well, Steve, I think people, sadly, are looking for 
the magic bullet. You know, they want the thing that's going to make it easy for them to lose weight. They don't want to feel hungry. You know, I, I, I know that I have a, uh, a thing about, I know how to satisfy myself with food and usually it involves overeating and I have to eat something sweet at the end. And that sounds funny, but it's true, right? Like if I don't eat slow enough, I'm probably eating, you know, a lot more carbs than I should. And I get into like that, um, that sugar high thing, you know, where you're kind of hungry and then you're not, and then you eat a little more and you go get into like a cycle. And I find that when I eat smaller portions and take my time, I actually feel fuller, better for longer. So a lot of it is just behavioral changes that people get into. Or, you know, they get they get into like a thing. Maybe they grow up in an environment where people overeat, and then it's stuck with them for the rest of their life. Or they they they're addicted to candy, and that's stuck with them for the rest of their life. They can't they don't know how to break out of it. And you also alluded to the fact that people get happiness out of eating, and they feel good, and they enjoy eating, and it does become an emotional issue. And losing weight's also an emotional issue because. People reach a point where they're so unhappy with the way they look and the way they feel that they just want to jump into a diet and lose the weight as fast as they can, and they think that's just the best thing to do. They have so much pain that they think the pain of being on a really horrible, restrictive diet is not as much pain as being fat. And the problem is that generally hurts them in the long run. They gain more weight because they go off this diet and just pig out again to regain all this weight. Jeff, what is a reasonable amount of a fat loss that you should expect on a weekly basis? Well, the safe levels, they always say one to two pounds or up to 1% of your body mass right now. Mm -hmm. The thing is, what you don't want to do is lose any lean body mass. When you lose lean body mass, that's what that's what drives your metabolism and that's what slows down your metabolism for people who lose weight. You don't want to lose 50 pounds and have to be eating like someone who's lost 100 pounds to maintain that weight loss. You want to eat the most amount of food that you can at any weight. You don't want to harm your metabolism no matter what. So that's what we consider safe weight loss is just fat loss. Absolutely. Right. If you're losing more than you know two pounds in a week, you're losing more than just fat. Yeah, you're generally. Losing some water and tissue, muscle and water. Yeah, water. And water is, you know, that's just, just fooling yourself, right? Just by That makes the scale look better temporarily, but it's just water weight. But if you're losing muscle then that's completely counterproductive because that's very metabolically active and it's also very healthy and aesthetically you know, beneficial tissue to have, right? That's, people, that's exactly what people don't want to do. Oh, yeah. When you look at the science, they say one pound of body fat burns about four calories per day and a one pound of lean body mass or muscle burns about 14 or 15 calories. The thing is, that's when you're just sitting doing nothing all day. Muscle burns a lot more calories when you move, so they say a pound of muscle can be 30 to 50 calories when you add everything in. So by losing two or three pounds, maybe you have to eat 100 calories less per day, worst case scenario. You know, Jeff, the way that you described lean muscle tissue, it kind of sounded like a machine that burns calories, you know. it's The more muscle mass you have, the more muscle you have to burn more calories. Yeah, that's exactly it, and that's the main reason why diets fail because people lose that muscle mass. I was just thinking, you guys talked about the Twinkie diet. Do you remember that a few months yeah. ago? Yeah, oh yeah. Now, the person who did this, he was on an 1,800 calorie per day diet, and after 10 weeks, he lost 27 pounds. I went to his personal blog and looked up all of his statistics where he put a lot more information, and of the 27 pounds, he lost 6 pounds of muscle mass. So, 22% of his fat loss, supposedly, was just muscle loss. So six pounds, maybe he's damaged his metabolism 150 calories less. That means his 27-pound weight loss, he should be able to eat 150 calories more per day every day to stay there. 
Now he has to eat less. He's probably going to gain that weight back partially because of that. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of extra Twinkies he could have eaten every day. Wow. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone was saying that that's a good diet to be on or a good strategy for weight loss. It was really a stunt to prove a point that it's real. the weight change, not fat loss, but weight loss, is all about calories. There, there's a, an ad on um, the radio stations locally. I'm not sure how widespread these ads are, but it's for like a weight loss shake. Again, it's a gimmicky weight loss product. And the guy who's selling it, there's two versions of the commercial. In one commercial, he makes like the outrageous claim that if you, if you, could, if you ate less than 1,000 calories a day, you'd still gain weight. Unless you were, you know, quote unquote, feeding your body right, which means buying his product and, eat, and eating his shakes. Yeah. So it's like, oh, how can he lie like that? I mean, it's just flat out completely incorrect. You you could eat less than a thousand calories a day and still gain weight. No, now, even if you're in a coma, you'll gain weight. You'll yeah, lose weight rather on, a, on a less than a thousand calories a day. That, yeah, that's dangerous as hell. It's lower than your your BMR, your basal metabolic yeah. rate. You'll be losing muscle left and right. Nasty. So, the, so the Twinkie diet counteracts that kind of nonsense, you know. But, but it obviously, yeah, wasn't meant to be like this is a healthful diet. Well, that, that that's that just focuses in, in on the, the importance of not weight loss. People say, oh, how much weight did you lose? Or look at all this weight I lost. Weight is shouldn't be what your focus is. Like we said, it should be the fat and not the muscle. And you got to design your activities and your diet around losing, making sure that you're losing fat. Oh, it's totally right. Who cares what you weigh? Are you going to go out in public right. and bring a scale with you to set it down to say, see, I hit 150 pounds. Look <laughs> at me. No one does that. They care about your circumference measurements. You know, get a tape measure, measure yourself, compare that week to week, because that's what you're trying to do is get smaller, not to weigh less. And another thing, it's, it's all about body fat percentage. Mm. We say to go for a BMI of 25. Now, 25 BMI is supposedly the upper range of healthy. It's not good for the individual, but it's just a starting point. Once you start to approach that, then you look at your body fat percentage to get you right into your landing zone here. And they say for acceptable weight, it's the 25%. So for men, if you're below 25% in there, that's acceptable. And for women, if you're just a little bit above 25%, it's acceptable. And those are just kind of the ballpark terms there. All right, so, so Jeff, for the average listener out there who, let's say, has got 20 or 30 pounds of weight that they want to lose, they're inundated with misinformation and you know gimmicky claims about fad diets, etc., and scientific-sounding information about glycemic index and whatnot. We're basically, so far, we've been saying that's all nonsense. It's not really science-based. What's the few things that somebody should do? What's a basic, you, know, you already stated your philosophy, but give us some like nuts and bolts about what people should be focusing on if they want to maintain a healthy weight. Well, the big thing is eating throughout the day, not starving, not skipping breakfast. It's eating smaller meals, five or six meals or three meals and two snacks. It's not drastically cutting your calories. It's doing something that you can go on for a lifetime or year after year and not even think that you're dieting. The goal is really to lose the weight the same way that you gain the weight. When people gain weight, they're not all bloated and feeling all unhappy and, you know, this is just horrible. You can lose weight the same way and just try on a pair of pants and all of a sudden they're a bit too loose. You know, it's the same way when you tried those pants on and they were too tight. Losing weight doesn't have to be a horrible experience to go through. It can be gradual and work. And 
people get so caught up in all the little intricacies, like like Steve, you were saying about the high glycemic index. If you just eat mainly all natural, unprocessed foods, and you watch the amount that you eat, you don't really have to worry about calories. You don't have to worry about supplements. Everything just comes together if you just live that sort of lifestyle. So uh, the question of what an individual should do, I think to me the, the literature um, is pretty clear. You know, it's it's overall calories. You know, you definitely want to. It's you know, f- uh, to some extent, food quality. It's how much you exercise. But the harder question is to figure out what. Why is it that as a society we're getting more and more overweight, and not just America, but but most Western industrialized nations are you know following in our footsteps in terms of obesity? Do you have uh, a sense of the literature or your own you know biases and what you think it may be the big factors for the obesity epidemic that we're in the middle of? Well, there's a lot of different statistics that we go over all the time, you know, from the CDC and the OECD countries. And it seems that when fast food moves into countries, and not just fast food, but a lot of processed food, the cheap foods that we see in Walmart, for example, the obesity levels tend to go up quite quickly. We're seeing that right now in Mexico, for example. But then there's also studies within the United States that show it's an economic issue and lower, lower average economics means that people are heavier. There's also things that show that when women earn more income, they're thinner, but the opposite is true for the men. The more income they earn, they're, they're actually, uh, fatter. So do you, do you, you think it's more that we're just, we're consuming more calories because we're consuming more, more uh, processed and fast foods? Is that the big factor? Statistically, you can see the statistics for the amount of average calories that have been produced per country, and then you divide it by the population. And the calories have definitely gone up five or 600 calories per day over about the last 20 years. So at least the food is being produced. We can't say that all of that's being eaten, but it is being produced, and the average calories means people are eating more food. And it's just common sense. It's not a huge secret, it's not a huge secret as to what's going on. We just look at the numbers. And what about the degree of uh, the level of exercise? I mean, the, the other side of the coin is that some people will blame it on the, a sedentary society, which again makes sense, and you could blame it on video games and computers. But I, I, I haven't seen the data to really support that. Well, the daily activity is definitely going down. Now, I'm a phys ed teacher in Canada, and Canada is just announcing that they're going to lower their recommended daily activity simply because they realized that if they set the level too high, people just won't even try to attain it, which I think is pretty sad, but I guess they have to get people moving somehow, even to whatever level they can. So they're basically just giving up and saying, all right, let's just move a little bit. You know, Forget about what's really a reasonable goal. We want you to just, they're choosing an attainable goal rather than the optimal goal. I see that so many places in society. You look at the airline seats that are getting wider because of the pressures of larger passengers. You look at the pressure on the automobile industry to have larger test crash dummies because, you know, larger people are getting more injured because the seatbelts won't hold them back. And every time that something like this accommodates, I guess in me, I feel so disappointed because I'd rather people get thinner and healthier, not just to keep accommodating and accommodating. And the thing about lowering uh, activity levels, that, that actually really did bother me. You do have to consider the fact that you, our bodies do have a regulatory mechanism by which they do a set point, yeah, our hunger, yeah. And it's amazing how if you think about it, over the course of a year, if you gain one pound over the course of a year, 
But that that means you know how closely you matched your caloric intake and output over the course of a year. Yeah. That's amazing. It is and amazing. It's, it's got to be because of the self-regulatory mechanism. And the and the bottom line is it's not easy to gain that system. It just isn't. It's not. You can't fool it just by drinking diet soda or you know macronutrient adjustments. Whatever. You, it's not easy to do that. And I, I I get the feeling that we really haven't cracked this nut yet. We're not really – we can point to factors that correlate and whatnot, but the, we have to learn more about you know, how to really influence that system so that people – without the Herculean effort that nobody can sustain, right? That's the, the big problem with diets is if, once you get beyond a certain threshold of effort, nobody can sustain it or very, very few people can. We need to figure out a way that it becomes easy for people to, to, to manipulate that system so that – you know, people are maintained at a, at a more healthful weight. And I honestly just don't think we've cracked that nut yet. That's true. Everyone can lose weight by following a diet or they can lose weight by gradually reducing their, what they're eating and how much and increasing what they're exercising. But the bottom line is, how are you going to make people do it without trying to force societal change? You want to make being fat counterculture, which is opposite of what it is right now. That's a huge turnaround for the entire society. Yep, I agree. So, uh, Jeff, where can people check out your, your website, your podcast, your book? Well, the website is fattofitradio.com. That's with the number two. And we also have a book out, the Fat to Fit, Getting There and Staying There. We basically did our first 100 episodes like an educational series where we had homework and reviews, etc. And when we got to 100 episodes, we thought we had all of these hundreds of pages of notes. We might as well put it together in a book. And that way, people who don't really listen to podcasts can actually get something in their hands and read through it as well. All right, Jeff. Well, thanks for joining us on the show. We really appreciate it. Thanks, thanks, it was Jeff. fun, guys. Thanks, Jeff. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. I challenge my panel of expert skeptics to sniff out the fake. There is a theme this week. Ugh. In honor of Charles Darwin, the theme is evolution. Oh, boy. Boo. You guys ready? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Item number one. X-ray studies of an ancient snake fossil reveal a hidden vestigial leg and support the hypothesis that modern snakes evolved from lizard ancestors. Item number two, a newly discovered fossil reveals a 100-million-year-old carnivorous cricket that was as large as a domestic cat. And item number three, scientists report that the animal with the most genes discovered so far is a tiny, almost microscopic crustacean, the water flea, with 31,000 genes. Rebecca, since you booed, you get to no. go first. <laughs> Come on, your majesty. Don't you know you have to remain... Totally silent. I, I don't um, want to go first because I've had a really hard week. My laptop blew up and I haven't been online. And I don't. Uh, all right. Wait, now Jay is writing stuff and I can't see the items anymore. All right. So, modern snakes evolve from lizards. Yeah, why not? Sure. Hidden vestigial leg. Um,. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense because, yeah, they could have had the legs and then they didn't need them anymore. And there are those, um, there's lizards, there's legless lizards. That's a thing. A hundred million year old carnivorous cricket as large as a cat. See, now I know that Steve 
doesn't do LSD. So how do you know? Because Steve doesn't do any drugs. Steve is what we call a teetotaler. That's right. And therefore, I believe that that one might be true because I don't think that Steve could have come up with that sans serious psychoactive, psychoactive, psychedelic <laughs> drugs. Anyway, um, scientists report that the animal with the most genes is the water flea with 31,000 genes. I I guess I don't that seems like a lot of genes but I don't know I don't, I don't know how many genes is a lot of genes I'm this sucks I'm going to I'll I'll just go with whatever Bob says <laughs> you <laughs> can't do that GWB can you do I can, that? There's no rules here there, do, I can No way do you get do you have a get out of science or fiction card free card Yeah I'd like to phone a friend and I want that friend to be Bob Bob which one are you going to go with <laughs> Sorry, Rebecca. Uh, all right. I'm going to say that the uh, snakes evolving from lizard ancestors, because that's the one that makes the most sense to me, is probably going to be the fiction because Steve wants us to think he's going to zig and then he zags. I believe this is a zag. Okay. So, yeah. All right. Evan? Scientists reporting the animal with the most genes discovered has 31,000 genes, and it's a water flea. I mean, that's uh, remarkable. Equally, if not more remarkable, is a supposed 100-million-year-old carnivorous cricket as large as a, as a domestic cat. Bet you they found that in China. <laughs> <laughs> like so many fossils and things they're finding nowadays. 100 million years old, though, carnivorous cricket. Were cricket-like things around 100 million years ago? Does that seem a bit long, Bob? Yeah, you think it's a bit long. Hmm? Yeah, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> not, so I'm having an issue with that one. And then, Don't try to do the Jedi mind trick on Bob. <laughs> it only, it only, you're right. It only works 60% of the time. <laughs> the first one, Steve, about the x-ray studies of the snake fossil revealing the hidden vestigial leg. Sorry, Rebecca. I think that one's science. And I'm having a hard time with this 100-million-year-old carnivorous cricket. I just think that's too far back for something cricketish. So I'm going to say that one's fiction. Okay, Bob. Let's see the vestigial legs on the ancient snake. I mean, yeah, I mean that just seems so yeah, so obvious. Um, maybe too obvious. Uh, what am I missing here? I'm trying to think of what did, did snakes even evolve from lizards? Maybe it was a completely different line. I I do remember seeing. Um, in a reptile and amphibian book, a really cool image of what looks like a snake, a clear snake. And this is a modern, a modern animal that exists now. It looks like a snake, but it's got legs. It's clearly got these tiny, tiny legs. Um, and it's, I think it's some type of lizard, but, uh, it's just a really weird looking thing. So that was just completely unrelated. Can't but, trust uh, photos. I don't, uh, the carnivorous cricket too. I mean, I could just see that as being, uh, either way. I can go totally either way on that as well. Um, I mean, yeah, at first when I was thinking as big as a domestic cat, yeah, right. But, I mean, 100 million years ago, wasn't the oxygen content of the atmosphere a lot higher, which supported much bigger insects? Like dragonflies were like bigger than, than dinner plates. Damn, I'm not sure. Uh, the, the one I'm having the easiest time with is, um, is the, is the third one about the uh, microscopic crustacean with more genes than anything than, than humans. I think humans have, what, 20, 
3,000, 20 to 25,000 genes. And I know we're not at the top of the pile in terms of genes. And it doesn't matter. It's not the amount of genes. It's, uh, you know, it's the interactions between them and things. So that one I could, I could buy more, much more easily than the first two. So I got to pick between the first two. Number one's too obvious. And, and number two with the carnivorous cricket is just too out there. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to go with the, um, with the lizard. Did your leg, so yes. uh, okay, you got your wish. Yeah, you did retroactively go <laughs> yes. with Bob. Retro wish. <laughs> very, right. poli- very polite of you, Bob. Jay saw into the future. Chival- <laughs> very it chivalrous. Was awesome. very That's chivalrous. definitive proof, incontrovertible proof of time travel. There we go. Yep. Jay. One second per second. Well, regarding modern snakes evolving from lizard ancestors, it just seems like ridiculously obvious. Duh, of course. I mean... They share ancestors with with lizards, you know? I mean, they're so damn similar, it's ridiculous. I mean, I can't think of any legitimate reasons why they would lose their legs. I like how you say legitimate reasons. Like maybe they actually lost them in a barroom brawl or <laughs> yeah. something like that. Through some scam. All right. um, I just think that one's true. Uh, a newly discovered fossil that revealed the 100-million-year-old car- carnivorous cricket. That was as large as a domestic cat. That's frightening. I mean, that that's crazy scary. Just imagine a cricket that big. I mean, it would jump. They would be able to jump like through your chest. You know what I mean? Like the power <laughs> in those legs would be ridiculous. And eat it. You too. forget. You yeah. you forget scaling. <laughs> but I I I know that I remember reading things like where they're saying that there was the oxygen was higher the farther back you go, and then that can support larger creatures. Didn't I say that? <laughs> yeah, he said he remembers hearing it. Just heard it <laughs> yeah, three I mean, minutes ago. I read that or Bob ago. said that a couple minutes ago. I don't know. No, Scrawled I, on a wall. I, I'm sorry, Bob. While you were talking, like I'm, I'm thinking about these things. But I don't know. There's something you about... paying attention to me. Or Googling. <laughs> I, and I'd also think that I would have heard about this enormously scary cricket before this. And imagine them like rubbing their legs together with the noises they'd make. It'd be deafening, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's something about that one I'm not I'm not too sure about. And then this last one, um, the water flea with 31,000 genes. It's an animal that has the most genes. Wow! So they're saying that this water flea has more genes than any other animal um, alive today. I'm assuming. Can I? Can you tell me if it's today or ever, Steve? It's that has that have been examined. Right. Okay, so as far as all the animals that have been examined so far, this one beats everyone with the number of genes. Yeah. Oh, man, this is where I, I really don't know this type of information. And I, I'm going to go with the uh, – I'm going to say that the one about the um, the, the, the domestic cat-sized cricket. That I think that one's the, the fake. All okay. right, Jay. Got an even split here, but you all agree number three, so we'll start there. Scientists report that the animal with the most genes discovered so far is a tiny, almost microscopic crustacean, the water flea, with 31,000 genes. And that one is uh, science. Yeah. Yay. Yay. So we know that two of you are correct and two of you are incorrect. But this one is science. Uh, and yeah, you know, I think of Bob who pointed out the fact that the number of genes doesn't necessarily have to correlate to the physical size of the creature. Obviously, there's probably not going to be a bacteria, you know, with, with 31,000 genes. But, but certainly, once you get to multicellular animals, you know, it doesn't really matter. 
I, I think P Vortex has got thirty thousand G's. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think so. So this, yeah, this they they basically sequence the genome of this uh, this creature. This is called Daphnia pulex. That's pretty good. Pulex. A pulex. P u l e x. I like it. It's like a puma and a Rolex. So Daphnia Steve, pu- pulex. Why? Why does it have so many genes? That's a really good question because. Its genes undergo duplication at about three times the average rate. So it's what? it's multiplying its genes over evolutionary time. What's the advantage of that? At a, at a greater rate. Well, well adaptation. More, I think it'd give you a great chance at adaptation. Yeah, it's more genetic raw material. Wow, that's pretty cool. Why yeah. why why aren't they masters of the planet? Right. right. Well, that's the point. Maybe right? they are, and we just don't know it. <laughs> they're, like fun, they're running experiments. It could be a recent adaptation. Who knows? Yeah. Or just there's some quirky odd reason why it's happening, uh, but pretty cool, pretty cool little creature. Um, of course, we haven't sequenced the genome of every living thing on Earth, so it it's only, it's the re- current reigning champion, but doesn't mean it yeah. won't, won't be deposed at some point it in won't. the future. You think it, it will. will be deposed at some point? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I think just going with just going with the odds. Yeah, just going with the odds. Something smaller and more obscure, you think? Not and, necessarily. And Bob, you're right. Probably not. Humans have twenty three thousand genes. You got that? You remember ah. that correctly? This is thirty one thousand. Yes. So. Yeah, it's, it's about one and a half times as much. Not too. Yeah, that was a big deal when we when we mapped out the, our the human genome. Like, damn, we've you know we've got fewer genes than we thought we did. Yep. Um, but it, it it turns out that doesn't matter. Obviously. Yeah. It's not the the raw number that matters that much. All right, moving on. Okay, so I guess we'll keep. I'll just keep going in reverse order. Number two. A newly discovered fossil reveals a 100-million-year-old carnivorous cricket that was as large as a domestic cat. Bob and Rebecca think this one is science. Jay and Evan think this one is fiction. And this one is the fiction. Yeah! yeah. High five! Well Boo. done. Nice. Boo. guys. Boo. Uh, <laughs> but this is based on a real Shen. news story. They always uh, are. Paleontologists have found a 100-million-year-old carnivorous cricket. So it is. So it is science. That's How science. It? It's just not as big as a domestic cat. It's not as big as a cat. It's it's in fact very. He's so a dog. Very similar to the modern version. This is the splay-footed cricket, and what's interesting about the fossil is that it is almost indistinguishable from its modern-day descendant. Oh, cool! So this is a genus of cricket. I mean, there are some differences. It's obviously not the exact species, but the genus is large, largely unchanged over the last hundred million years. Um, wow! And very successful. So it's very not only it's not just successful; it, it's also probably still in the same habitat, which is like a dry yeah, kind of kind of have to be right almost. Yeah, right. Exactly. So it, the the most common response of a species to a change in its habitat. Is to do what? Die. So, that's the, move, that's the, move, that's the second mode. That's the to second get bigger. Mode. Get out of get out of town. Yeah. So it's to 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 habitat track to move to find just to migrate to some place that that is as close to the habitat you're already adapted to as possible. The second most common response is to go extinct, and it's <laughs> only it's only the third most common response to, Change, to evolve adapt. to adapt to the changes in the environment. Yeah. So clearly this cricket has just been successful at habitat tracking for 100 million years and hasn't had to adapt or evolve at all. It's pretty much the same as it was 100 million years ago. 
Of course, the creationists always hit upon these examples as, you know, as evidence against evolution because, again, they, they go back to everything should be constantly changing at a constant rate. Well, no, evolutionists <laughs> don't believe that. That's, you know, like it's about a 200-year-old <laughs> notion. Maybe 150 years. So, yeah, this is perfectly compatible with our modern concepts of, how, of, the, of the mode and tempo of evolution, as uh, Stephen Jay Gould liked to say. Cool. Um, but, yeah, that was pretty cool. Jiminy, but it, Miss Gould. Jiminy, yeah. But it wasn't as big as a cat. I did. I was thinking, oh, yeah, the whole oxygen thing, and there were like the the, the plate size yeah. dragonflies and stuff. So I, I was trying to push that a little got bit. Me. It got would be, me. It would bastard. be. So uh, that <laughs> gave it the plausibility. It would be pretty scary though, to, and it was carnivorous. I mean, imagine seeing a carnivorous cr- cricket as big as a cat. I think that. That's what I said. Out. Yeah, That'd be awesome. You I totally heard, sucked I, me into that one, Steve. I heard. I heard <laughs> that once somewhere. I don't like Steve. I don't like you taking advantage of me and manipulating me that way. <laughs> All right, which means X-ray studies of an ancient snake fossil reveal a hidden vestigial leg and support the hypothesis that modern snakes evolved from lizard ancestors. And this one is, of course, science. Of course, it's science. This is cool as well. Uh, so, th- actually, there aren't many well-preserved fossil ancient fossil snakes. So we don't know that much about snake evolution because their skeletons actually tend to be delicate. And we have only very partial skeletons, but this is a fairly well-preserved skeleton. So this is actually a, a very well-preserved uh, species. Um, it, the, the article says only three specimens exist of uh, fossilized snakes with preserved leg bones. This is, so this is only one of three fossils showing that they had legs. This is Eupodophis disquenzi, I think is how you pronounce it, disquenzi. A lot of vowels in there. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. So this is about 95 million years, years old. And actually, the paleontologists have already seen one leg cropping out of its pelvis, uh, but that le- the leg that's on the top, the surface of the fossil, so, th- so that's eroded, and it's not in very good condition. So they used uh, like a 3D X-ray technology in order to look at the, the other leg that's embedded, still embedded in the the rock. So it's better preserved because it's still inside the rock. And they were able to image um, the complete leg. And it looks very vestigial. You know, it doesn't have any toes. It's sort of, it's reduced in size. Uh, But it has, you know, the leg bones and it's coming off of the pelvis. It's like exactly what you would think a vestigial halfway gone leg would look like. So good job, uh, Jay and Evan. You guys turned it upside down. Thank you. You flipped it. Nice. Good this job. time. This time. Yeah, Bob and I have ex- to give them one every now and then. Yeah. Yes. Ex- 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 keep their hopes up. Nothing Exceptions like- that prove the rule. You got to throw mm-hmm. it every now and then. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I love the exceptions that prove the rule. No, it's That's just data. Special it's just creating. contradicting data. <laughs> um, all right. Well, Jay, you have a quote for us this week? This was a quote sent in by Jeff Fisher from Columbus, Ohio. And it's a quote from Leo. Tolstoy. Rebecca, who is Tolstoy? Tolstoy is a famous Russian author. Da. Yeah, <laughs> and, and he was uh, considered to be one of the world's greatest novelists. Thank you. Yeah, Very he's smart. Real girl, horror Rebecca. show. He did the War and Peace <laughs> thing, right? Yeah. What did you? What, what were you looking for? <laughs> famous Russian author is pretty much it. it describes it, right? And he said. <laughs> 
The most difficult subjects can be explained to the most slow-witted man if he has not formed any idea of them already. But the simplest thing cannot be made clear to the most intelligent man if he is firmly persuaded that he knows already, without a shadow of a doubt, what is laid before him. Leo Tolstoy! That's a, that's a good quote. I like that. Thank you. He's all right, that Leo. And thanks for joining me again this week, everyone. Thank you, Steve. Sure. You're awesome, Thank Steve. You, Doc. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcast, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zune, or your portal of choice. Theorem is performed by Kineto and used with permission. 